In the name of Allah, most gracious, ever merciful. <coughs> Welcome. Good afternoon. Assalamu alaikum. And may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all from Friday Drive Time Show <coughs> on the Voice of Islam with myself, Kayum, and Brother Daniel. I hope you've had a fantastic week and uh, preparing yourself for the coming weekend. Um, Assalamu alaikum. Peace be on you, Brother Daniel. How are you? Wa alaikum assalam, peace be on you as well and all the listeners out there, very well, really looking forward to the show today. It hasn't been a very uh, bright and sunny day, but uh, nevertheless, uh, we can still hope for a good weekend. It's the typical British summer. It is the British, absolutely, you know, yeah, correct. Your, Europe is suffering a heat wave and uh, the, we are. The, ra- the, the shortfall in rain they're suffering. Yeah. We have we we actually took it in Brexit. <laughs> one one, one one thing we forgot to negotiate on was the weather. <laughs> we forgot to import the weather. No, we forgot, but but that's the whole point of Brexit, isn't it? That it we is. wanted everything to be our own. That's it. And we wanted to re- retain. We wanted uh, to uh, keep, keep <laughs> our sovereignty. <laughs> exactly. Well, sovereignty and the rain and British. So we've kept our weather. We kept our weather. Right. Um, interesting topics that we are going to be discussing. Uh, uh, for the next two hours, uh, the first one controversial, um, and uh, it's uh, it's open to uh, it's open to question. Um, anybody has uh, any c- comments on it? I would love to to hear what you have to say. The topic we're going to be talking about for the next hour or so is rent controls. Do they actually work? I'm the wrong person. <laughs> I'm the wrong person to 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 dis- discuss this. So I'm hoping that brother Daniel will. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll balance it we'll, out. We'll balance it out. No, um, actually, you're not. I think it, it's it's. Uh, I think it, it's. Uh, it will be great for uh, for a good informed discussion. Given that uh, you you're somebody who who owns uh, some properties, mm-hmm. and therefore you can talk uh, from that standpoint. And then uh, we have some um, some guests. But I, I think this also opens up um, a great opportunity for our listeners to come in and join the. This is a live show, and uh, the number to call is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven. And please do come on and and, <laughs> and and talk to us about what you think. The reason I laugh, we we've got a question on the Instagram story. Should the UK introduce rent controls? And the the choice is yes or no. Right. I'll, I'll let you have a guess. Uh, well, it will be, yes would be, I think, a massive yes, uh, right? At the moment, it's 100%. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's not the fault of the people who don't know rent control, who don't know the history of rent control, who don't know... How they work and or not work. It's, it isn't, this isn't a, and I'm going to start with this, this isn't a an easy... Uh, discussion. This isn't an easy topic. And this isn't just about ethics, morals. This isn't just about ideology. Whether we like it or not, rent controls is about finance. It's about economics. From an individual all the way to the governing bodies. So it's got to be um, it's got to be tackled in a holistic way Hmm. or it will never be uh, um, uh, resolved in a, in an amicable way. So, isn't it a great opportunity, brother Kim, for you to educate us all oh, and, and to tell us uh, all, all about how to turn? And and I think it'll be a good test if we can if you can turn some of these yeses into noes uh-huh. by the end of these two hours. I think you've had a success. Um, well, I'm a success already, so I don't need to prove <laughs> it. So, <laughs> that's that's another topic, you know. Yeah. Success in terms of convincing people um, to to accept well, your point I, of view. I used to, I used to sell snow to the Eskimos. So it's again. 
<laughs> so I did quite well there. So again, <laughs> let's get to rent control. I'm not so, surprised, brother. <laughs> so with the cost of living crisis uh, on the rise, do controls on rental costs help those struggling to pay rent? According to the Bevan Foundation, um, a Welsh think tank who ran a survey in February regarding private properties advertised for rent in Wales found that out um, 32 out of 2,638 properties could be covered by housing benefits. Now, housing benefit is an allowance which is set by central government um, in accordance with local housing rent levels. So okay. each area, they they do um, kind of a, a, survey. a survey of local rents, supposedly, and they set um, um, a benchmark, a benchmark right. as to what the rents would be from a room all the way up to four-bedroom properties. Got it. So housing benefits is the financial benefit that helps individuals to pay their rent. With every, <clears throat> with very few properties eligible for housing benefit, can rent controls help individuals pay their rent? Um, Brother Daniel, let me ask you, what's your definition of a rent control? In, in again, from a from a layman's point of view. When I say to you, uh, Brother Ani, we're going to be putting up, um, you know, we're, we're going to be uh, putting on rent controls. What's yeah. the first thing that comes to mind? That uh, a ceiling is being uh, is being set, mm-hmm. that um, a limit is being placed on the amount uh, a landlord can actually charge um, uh, a tenant uh, as to what uh, they need to pay for their monthly rent. And according to Investopedia, uh, the official definition is rental controls are a type of government program that places a limit on the amount a landlord can demand for leasing a home or renewing lease. Now, if I was to say to you, you have a nice car, you've bought it, you've worked hard for it, but uh, you can't drive it more than 5,000 miles a year, hmm. what would you say to that? I'd say that's uh, not right. So if I was to say to you, you have worked hard, you've bought a property, and the market is demanding a certain rent, and then I come in and say to you, no, you can't charge that rent. You have to charge what I tell you to charge. How would you feel about that? Yeah, uh, I'd feel... um You'll feel aggrieved. I, I definitely feel aggrieved, but I think there is another side to look at it as well. I mean, as long as the there uh, is there is as long as the mortgages, as long as the banks, uh, what interest banks are charging me also stays at the same level, uh-huh. um, and there is a ceiling set on that on the costs that I have uh, that have been imposed on me, yeah. then I think uh, we can we can discuss There's it. a discussion to be had. Yeah, correct. Thank you. Fantastic answer. The reason it's a fantastic answer because you haven't said it's just about the landlord you have kind of added layers onto it has to be nothing exists in a vacuum it, it wouldn't make sense otherwise right exactly. because a lot of people are are a lot of properties are buy to let properties yep. uh, a lot of people a lot of investors buy in buy property because they want to let it mm-hmm. and when they let the properties uh, they the rent that they demand has to be consumer rate with the costs that they incur um, in in making that property available to be rent to be rented, there's a Quranic verse: "Verily, Allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others, and giving like kindred, and forbids indecency and manifest evil, and wrongful transgression." 
He admonished you that you may take heed. 1691 from the Holy Quran. Now, this verse is not just applicable in this equation and in this narrative that we're talking about that justice needs to be done for the tenant. Hmm. Because there isn't a landlord on the face of this earth who will ever say that justice shouldn't be given to tenants or that tenants have an easy life. Tenants don't have an easy life. I know that. Mm. Um, I know they go through rough times. There are, there are high rents. Cost of living has affected mm. the tenant. But it doesn't finish there. Mm. There is another side of the story as the well. The landlord has also been affected not just by the cost of living, yeah. but also by the by the economic crisis, mm. by the the additional um, the additional taxations that have been levied on the um, on on the on, on the landlord, and by a lot of subsidies that landlords used to get that have been taken away, and a lot more regulation has come in as well, which of has course. increased the costs uh, of the, actually making the property ready to be rented out. Now, what you will find is majority of the landlords have no problem with the regulation. They're welcoming it. Mm. What they're not welcoming is that there is a sector, there is a percentage of landlords who normally refer to as rogue landlords, TV programs all over the place, sure. so-and-so, rogue landlord did this and did that. There is action you can take against them. Mm -hmm. But why should the majority be tainted because of the actions of the few? Mm. Why should policy should be changed because of the actions of a few. You know what? I think there, this goes back to uh, to a cultural um, a cultural issue, mm -hmm. which is uh, sort of inherent in the in, in in almost the the thinking of this country, and which is to hate the rich. Yes, and. Uh, and I think, you know, from an Islamic point of view, that that's not allowed. I mean, as you said, if somebody's worked hard or if somebody, uh, you know, just because somebody has money is, isn't, doesn't give it the other person the right to hate them, to despise them, uh, to be jealous of, uh, of the richness just because uh, they don't have that and the other person does. So I think, you know, there, there is probably that angle uh, that has come into this sort of thinking as well. And, and this probably come, comes. And, and to go back to the example of the car that he gave earlier, I think probably a better example would be that would you put a ceiling on the rent, on, on the, on the rent? Uh, a taxi driver charges you, the fare a taxi driver charges you from, uh, to take from point A to point B, while uh, the, uh, the fuel costs are going up. Mm. You wouldn't. No. Nobody does that. No. So, you know, you have an asset. If I have a car and I want to use that as a taxi, I um, have every right to charge the rent, a reasonable amount of rent, a market-based rent, to take a person from point A to point B. And I will determine that market rate based on what you know what other other taxi drivers charge him because otherwise nobody will come and sit in my taxi, um, and uh, I will also look at um, uh, uh, the inputs that are going into making that car available in terms of the uh, wear and tear and maintenance of that car, and the major. Um, input, which is the fuel cost. Hmm. Now, if the fuel cost is rising, you just can't say to the owner of the car, just because he owns a car and he happens to have the finances to, to own a car, say that, no, uh, you have a car and therefore, sorry, you you cannot increase the rent. There is a, there's a, there's a ceiling on the amount of fare you can charge uh, uh, to take a person from point A to point B. Now, 
conflict of interest you have said that i i i i am an active landlord however there's a flip side to it i worked in homelessness for over 12 years with various local authorities across london mm-hmm. and what we found in the organization i was i was working for this um one of the top housing um associations within london and the only solution was to have a a partnership between private sector and public sector yeah found middle ground where public sector need of shortage of housing was supplemented not totally provided supplemented by the private sector and private sector were given um not what they wanted but with negotiations mutually beneficial agreements were made mm-hmm. and solutions were found right which were abandoned after a decade or so um and which once they were abandoned because they weren't becoming cost they, because they were not cost effective from government's change policies change whenever these kind of things happen homelessness is affected by default yeah simple as that it, it's there's no ifs and buts about it homelessness is something that has increased but and no one's ever tackled it people have thrown money at it yeah but money is not the problem correct but before we discuss further i want to go and listen to an interview we did with uh, um dan crow um uh, dan wilson crow who is from generation rent and and uh, i want to, and he kind of lays the argument down for rent controls so let's go and listen to it before we come back and and discuss this further sounds good All right, joining us today on the Draft Time show is uh, Dan Wilson Crow. He's the Deputy Chief Executive of Generation Rent. Dan, thank you very much for joining us today and uh, peace upon you. Welcome to the Draft Time show. Thanks, glad to uh, be here. Now, Dan, how effective do you think rent controls will be in creating affordability in the UK? Is this in your opinion a good policy to adopt? if so why has it not been adopted if not what are the reasons mm, right what a what a uh, big big subject i mean i think the uh, um the reason i mean rent controls is incredibly popular um people are i mean private renters in particular uh mostly feel they're paying far too much rent uh it means that you can't uh you can't save for the future um it's uh, it can also you know if you want even even people on middle incomes but particularly if you're on a low income uh the cost of rent can really eat into your in, into your living standards so you can't it can be difficult to buy essentials it can be difficult to to treat yourself to a holiday just because the rents of rents are taking up so much of our income now and in, in in some measures it's around 40% of income obviously in in parts of the country it's worse than that particularly london uh rents are cheaper in other parts of the country uh northeast for example but yeah i think the 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 concept of rent controls is really popular because you know that's you know it's housing it's it's it's, it's something that's a, that's an essential that, that's a basic uh part of your basic needs so it's it's really it's really important that we have that, that everyone is able to afford afford a place to live uh and and rent control is is seen as as, as one way of of making sure that the pe- everyone can afford that that basic that basic thing that, that that we all need there are a bunch of other 
policies that that are theoretically um, there to 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 make housing affordable. So, uh, for example, um, through the benefit system, if you're if you qualify for universal credit or or housing benefit, that that um, provides some some financial support with your rent. Uh, not everyone qualifies for that, though, of course. And and even if you do, uh, the 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 support that you get isn't necessarily linked to to what the local rents are right now. Uh, local housing allowance, which is what sets the uh, sets the financial support you get if you're on benefits, is, is based on rents four years ago, which um, uh, mm. which means that when rents have increased by twenty two percent, as they have in the past two years, the people on people on benefits are, are struggling in particular to not only to uh, to pay rent on their current home, but but to to find a new tenancy if they need to if they need to move, their circumstances have changed. So um, you could you could set what rent a given property could could be rented out at, or you could um, have a different approach where you just uh, limit the um, the increase in the rent in the rent per year. Um, so there are, there are different those two different concepts of rent achieve basically different things. So if you're um, uh, if you're living in a um, in a tenancy right now, your landlord could um, could raise the rent to whatever the market rent is is at the moment, which could be which could have risen much faster than your than your wages. So in 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 London, for example, I think rents in the past year have gone up by about by about twelve percent, but wages have gone up by six percent. Um, so if you had a, a rent control which was uh, based on what wage growth is, you know that's one one example of, of, of how you could set it. Um, it would mean that rents couldn't go be, beyond six percent this year, and, and and that might help a lot of people um, actually just afford to stay in the place that they're currently living in. Uh, people, there are people who are getting who are getting twelve percent rent increases even more. Depending, it all depends on the local market, yeah. um, and it, and it means that you know if you can't afford that, then you then you have to move out. You have to find somewhere else and that can also that can often mean you know if, if if the local rent has gone up by that much you're having to move uh into a smaller property you know you might have to share with other people um you might not have a a, a living room or um or you know poorer facilities yeah. or you could be moving having to move further out of your neighborhood away from family away from and, and have your quality of life impacted yeah. in that way so correct me if i'm wrong here so from based on what you're saying this this would then only apply to people who are already in homes correct uh, so this yeah this type of rent control yes but then yeah. you could you could also have a uh, a rent control where um a a body a, a rent control board uh sets the rent for a um, for a certain type of property and and this this exists in um in parts of europe it used to exist in the uk as well yeah. Um, until about uh, 40 years ago. Um, okay. In fact, the, sorry, go on. No, no, please continue. Um, so uh, so that, that's another, that, that would actually bring rents down in, in theory, or that would be possible to, to do that. Um, it's, um, it would be, um, so, so what, what it would do is um, address the symptom that, um, of the problem, which is that rents are, rents are on new tenancies are too high, um, but what? Um, but we also need to 
uh, understand what else we need to do alongside that to to make it work in practice. Mm. Um, and, and that involves recognizing that the reason rents are going up, um, rents are high, is that um, there aren't enough homes available for, for the people who want to live in a certain area. Um, and so if you if you lower, if you reduce rents and, and say you can't ch- charge more than a thousand pounds for this type of property, for example, um, it means that more people will come in and say, oh, I, I'm, I can actually afford that place. Uh, I'm going to apply for it. And it, it just means that more people will, will try, will want to re- rent somewhere and it won't actually address the, the fact that there aren't enough homes to go around. So what you need to do if you do in, we need to do this anyway, um, regardless of, of, of whether you support rent controls or not, uh, you need to make sure that the underlying problem is is uh, addressed and that's that's the lack of homes, um, particularly in places like London, um, city, other cities in the south, Brighton, uh, Bristol, um, and increasingly parts of the north, Manchester in particular, has, has, has had an increase uh, in um, a, a, a big increase in rents uh, because there's um, a lot, a lot more demand from from people to live there. Um, so is and, that is that? Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry to cut you off. Is that some of you know some of the policy recommendations that you at Generation Rent suggest to create maybe a more balanced and and fairer rental market? So build more, so we have more. Yeah. So um, in terms of affordability, the priority should be uh, building more homes, making sure that um, where rents are more than and um, what what the average owner can afford, we are we are taking steps to 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 make sure that there are more homes, um, more homes physically there and available to to live in. Um, alongside that, you also need more social housing. I think a big part of the problem in in, in the private rental sector is that a lot of people um, would have a, would have qualified for social housing um, uh, twenty years ago. But um, but there's just been a, um, a a decline in the number of of, of that of, of of social housing through right to buy and through the fact that we just haven't been building enough of it, um, and so that's uh, so a lot yeah a, a big part of the new any new house building we do will need to be social housing and once once you um, create homes that are aimed at people on low incomes then you do you take those people. You, you're able to take those people away from the, the the rental market, which can be, you know, when people have particular needs, if they're old, if they're disabled, it's is really not appropriate for them to to rely on profit making landlords for their home. Um, is, but taking them out of the of the rental market and into social housing, then just reduces demand for um, within the market, and and that helps to reduce rents for 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 the private renters who, who remain in the market. Um, and so in terms of rent control or rent regulation, um, there, are, there are various different uh, terms that people use. Um, within tenancies uh, is, is sort of the priority because we want to make sure that, uh, you know, if you're in a home, your landlord can't just raise the rent to, to an unaffordable level. Uh, there should be some uh, some protections for, for tenants in that situation. So um you could uh, you could base uh base a, a cap on annual rent increases to um the lower of wage growth or inflation obviously inflation right now is, is running really 
really high so um uh, and, and faster than wages so so you, you'd need something to to reflect how that pe- the, the tenants actually need to be able to afford a rent increase um it might not necessarily improve affordability overnight but it would improve the security of tenure for, for yeah. tenants which is another thing to be spoken about but yeah. maybe at another point um now lastly there dan i want to ask you about um, something that Generation Rent called for at the last mayor or mayoral elections of London in 2021, you called for a mayor for rent controls. Do you think that the current mayor is doing enough to tackle the lack of affordability in in in, in London? I mean, he's clearly in favor, or he's you know repeatedly called for rent controls in London. Is is that is that enough? Do you think? Uh, I think a big. Uh, I mean, the, the main. The main power the the mayor has is um, making sure there's enough enough homes being built. So the mayor has a lot of uh, uh, influence over councils. Ultimately, it, in in a lot of cases, it, it is it is the councils, the boroughs of London, that that make um, make decisions about about house building. But obviously, the the, the mayor of um, uh, Greater London uh, has a has a grip. Does does have an influential role, um, and and has land um, under under his control, uh, has has funding as well, um, and so there there is a lot that, that he can do. We we um, one thing that one thing that he has done is is imp- increase the um, proportion of affordable or, or, uh, social housing. I, I think it's described as affordable um, by him because social housing is is very specifically. Um, homes that could be could be rented on on for um, uh, very low rents, uh, but there's sort of intermediate uh, uh, rented homes as well. Um, I know that he has uh, increased the, the portion that developers have to provide, um, and that has boosted the number um, of, of, of homes available um, to to people on lower lower incomes. I think that one of the big challenges in London is uh, that a lot of um, I mean that. The housing crisis doesn't just affect the people at the lowest, uh, you know, on the lowest incomes, but people on middle incomes um, have very little prospect of getting into home ownership, um, and so there's a big kind of political um, pressure to to help to help people on middle incomes uh, get into home ownership, even if even if they could potentially afford um, to 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 rent. Um, uh, to continue renting at, at the market market level, I think one of the one one thing that we're we're concerned about is that there's too much uh, emphasis on um, on affordable home ownership when you know the real crisis is um, the crisis that needs the most attention is is people who are on low incomes, particularly people who who have uh, additional needs like the, like a disability or mm. um, or, or old age. Um, because yeah, at the moment there, there's very little to support them. It's it's a real lottery if they if they can access uh, social housing. Deputy Chief Executive or Executive of Generation Rent Dan Wilson Crow with us on the line. Dan, I want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, greatly appreciate you coming on on to the Draft Time Show. And uh, yeah, again, uh, thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. Um, if anyone's interested in uh, in learning more about Generation Rent, you can find us on uh, generationrent.org or, and we're on Twitter and Facebook as well. Wonderful. Thanks once again, Dan. Thank, Thank you. you. 
And there we had Brother Raza, um, who interviewed Dan. And some some interesting points raised by Dan. And uh, again, I'll go back to what what uh, I was talking when I was talking to Brother Daniel, that the issues around um, the, the the issues around um, the the concerns for tenants are valid, but the solutions that are being offered um, by some organisations they are not the responsibility of the landlord. It is the responsibility of the government to provide social housing, to provide adequate housing, mm. to provide housing which is um, which is habitable. Mm. It is the government's responsibility to put regulation in place which landlords must meet in, in you know to meet certain standards that if they're going to charge a rent then the property must um, meet a certain standard. That's the responsibility. At the moment, if a landlord um, is housing someone who just happens to be an immigrant and whose visa has expired, that landlord is liable. The government holds the landlord liable because supposedly that landlord has committed a has broken the law. So the regulation, the example of the regulation that yeah. we were talking about earlier. But, you know, <clears throat> isn't there is another question here, which is that um, what about the, the other side, which says that some uh, landlords, mm-hmm. if not all, are extortionists and, and they... Define they, extortion. So so they charge exorbitant rents and and that drives a lot of people out of the market because because of the divide between the haves and the have-nots in the, in this country and, and everywhere Brother else. Brother Daniel, let me ask you the, a question. The, the rich are able to afford... Some of the top sporting brands in the world um, are, are made in Pakistan. Yes? Yeah. The cost of making them is what? Pound? Two pound? Say 10 pound. A pair of trainers, 15 pound. Let's say fifty pound, and they're sold for four hundred pound, five hundred pound. What I'm saying no, is, no, brother, Kim, no, I, I that's think, extortion. But you know, I slightly disagree with that example Why? because no, no, it is extortion, right? but it's an extortion of uh, of something which is not as a necessity. It is a necessity for everyone to have a roof on their face. It's not a necessity to wear a Nike uh, okay. for everybody. It right? is today in today's day and age. It well, is well, because if no, no, but this it, is what I'm saying. That's a moot point. It is. It is a okay. Fine, it's a moot point. But what I'm saying is, to say that a landlord has gone out of the way or has been given favorable terms to acquire a property they bought the property from the market where which is accessible to everyone mm. they didn't go into a special place or they didn't uh, go and contact anyone special to acquire this property they bought this property from the open market yeah at they went to the same bank who offer mortgages to these landlords somebody else could have gone in and said we want to buy the property too they could have purchased it so this argument that it's extortion but let's put this in let's put things into context here majority of the landlords today yeah mm. they are struggling i know a few landlords who've had their buy to let properties repossessed because they couldn't afford because their tenants stopped paying rent i i'm agreeing with everything that you're saying brother yeah. my question is mm. how do you control this noise? How do you tackle the noise that is being created by maybe a handful of landlords out there? What what steps can be taken? Mm-hmm. 
but to, to control. Penalize the landlord who yeah. is breaking the law. How? By fining them, taking away the property from them, do a compulsory purchase. That's by law you can do that. The governments can go and say, you have uh, not met the required standard and we're going to make a, we're going to fine you. If they don't listen, we're going to double the fine. Or worst possible scenario, we're going to do a compulsory purchase. We will purchase the property, bring the property up to standard, and then we, we will rent it out to the tenants. There are so many different ways of this happening that to say that the whole of the industry, all of the landlords who welcome changes, who welcome regulation, who welcome that the standards of housing have improved, they don't have a problem with it. Hmm. They don't have a problem with it. But what they're, what they're saying is, well, hold on. If I have bought a property and one of the cost of me buying this property from a business point of view is I'm paying a mortgage. Right. So I should be able to take away that mortgage cost from my rental. Of course. But, they, but they're not allowed to do that anymore. They've taken that subsidy away. Right. So if a landlord is earning £1,000 a month from a property... Hmm. And after taking away his buildings insurance, after taking away all the costs of electric, gas, uh, energy performance certificates, yeah. mortgage, building insurance, everything, he's left with £200 of a profit from his point of view. Yeah. Yet he's having to pay tax on the full £1,000. So he's, he's, he's paying a tax Agreed. on something which is the responsibility of the government, not his. In fact, the bank. The bank is the one who gets majority of the money in the mortgage. Let's go to our next guest and, and maybe put this question to him. So our next guest is Professor Ken Gibb, who is a professor in housing economics at the University of Glasgow. And he is the director of the UK Collaborative Centre for Housing Evidence. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Hello. How are you? Very well. Thank you very much, Professor, for joining us. So if I were to ask the same question to you, uh, what would you say? What would you say to people who, who say that landlords, uh, some landlords anyways, are extortionists and therefore measures must be taken to control that? I think uh, the, one of the fundamental problems here is our, our actual empirical understanding of the private rented sector. And the representativeness of bad behaviour or good behaviour is really difficult to, to pin down in a, in a sensible way. It varies massively around the country. And uh, really, I agree with what your colleague said, that uh, where there is illegality or wrongdoing, that has to be uh, stamped out. And that, that's in the interest of everybody in the rental market, landlords, tenants, local government, everyone. I mean, a, a major problem certainly, in, as I understand it, in parts of the UK, is that we have, uh, we're, we're kind of underserved by those people who provide uh, enforcement and compliance of the laws that, that exist. And, and as in many parts of housing and planning, we simply don't have enough officers with, with, with power and with the uh, res resources to do, do the things that have, have to be done. So, so that's, what, that's always an issue. Because, you, you, you know, if you're going to be serious about this, you actually have to get inside a property, you have to, be able to talk to tenants and landlords and to look at the evidence uh, about about behaviour, be it be it bad landlord behaviour, be it bad tenant behaviour. And and that's not a trivial matter. But our rental market has grown so much in recent times 
that it's, it's all the more important. It, it's also important because uh, what's what's unusual about the rental market compared to, say, other parts of the housing system is that we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of small-scale private landlords, and there and it's just difficult for local government and other intermediaries to sort of manage and, and understand what's going on there because there are so many so many people involved. Um, before we ask the next question, uh, next question, uh, Professor, very smart move there, Professor, by the way, uh, by agreeing to my co-presenter there. That's what we do in the studio as well. <laughs> it's always easier. We just agree with him and then, you know, the discussion becomes so much easier and the, uh, and the atmosphere and becomes so much better. So it's so I, I, smart I, move I, there, I Professor. Yeah, I also understand it's important to say that. Say that, that, that that's a good question. You're all the same to say that as well, aren't you? Ken, if I may, just, just uh, a question on what you just said. Yeah. That majority of the landlords are small <clears throat> landlords. Yes. Isn't that kind of misrepresented in the mainstream media or or there's this thought process that everyone is is um, is conning the system? Or what's the word you use? Exploiting the system, yeah. and and being extortionate. Most small it's, landlords have bought properties because, in the eighties and and mid eighties, there was massive pension holes. There was the pensions went down, or people's life savings disappeared. So people took matters into their own hands and decided to create their own small pensions. Majority of the land, I mean, you know, th- th- there is there are big landlords. And there are small landlords, and the small landlords get affected by such, you know, drastic measures that are being discussed, which is actually scaring landlords, and they're putting properties on the market. I mean, I was discussing with my uh, esteemed brother here, Brother Daniel, that I know of firsthand, I know of at least 10 landlords who have actually put their properties on the in the auction, and they were landlords who used to rent to housing mm-hmm. benefit tenants. Yes. And yes, exactly. what's what's actually happened is 10 social housing families mm-hmm. have suddenly become the responsibility of the local authority. And 10 properties have gone out of the sector and majority of these properties have been bought by massive uh, companies mm-hmm. who have just added these properties to their portfolios where pensions are the ones who are you know it's massive pension funds who are investing in property um and kind of it's like a full circle but the 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 little man is the one who's being affected and the people who these organizations think that they're protecting they're the ones that in fact it's the total opposite they're suffering because of these um these controls they want to introduce yeah well i I think it's certainly the case that the great majority of the, of the private rental sector is populated by landlords with very small port, portfolios. And as you say, I don't think uh, I actually just don't think people generally are able to say accurately what is going on because of that very disaggregated, atomized kind mm. of nature of of housing supply in the rental market. But you're absolutely right, and it's an important thing to say. And a lot of a lot of people talking in housing policy and practice will talk about the the impact of small-scale private landlords leaving the sector because of these financial pressures, tax changes, and, and other things that are, that are going on, as well as the, the increasing difficulty in the market and this perception of future political risk. But a lot of their 
properties don't leave the sector. You know, they, they go, as you say, to larger scale landlords who may or may not be incorporated or, or equity based or in investment funds that are sitting behind them. Uh, but nonetheless, for the continuing future in most places, most of the rental market is going to remain these large number of small scale landlords. And it's interesting, we, I'm, I'm involved, I don't, I'm not doing the research, but I'm on the advisory board of a, a really interesting research project in Scotland, which is looking at uh, the impact of legislation in 2017, which changed the tenancy in Scotland, and seeing how it's affected tenants, landlords and letting agents. And one of the things that comes out of uh, interviews is that many private tenants actually welcome buy-to-let landlord, small-scale landlord, because they take a different kind of interest in the property to the more corporate, kind of remote uh, uh, letting agent landlord sort sort of a thing. So that's only quality of evidence. But again, it's not it's not it's not a binary thing. It's more complicated than, than that. And I think that's that's something that we we don't often see. We see we see the worst uh, because that's what that's what makes news. But actually, of course. What the housing charities do, like like shelter and crisis, is they rightly point out, you know, the the, the worst things that'll happen because you know people have rights and and they need to be be protected as well. But we need a balanced picture of all of these things. Ken, I can ask you a million more questions, but we're short of time, so I'm going to thank you for taking time okay. and coming on to the Drive Time Show. I'm sure we will revisit this topic, and and I Please hope do, that yeah. uh, that uh, you will agree to come on board. Um, I wish you a fantastic evening ahead and uh, and a weekend ahead. May peace be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you, Ken. Let's go and listen to an interview we did uh, with uh, Matthew Lesh um, and see um, what kind of insight uh, they gave us on this topic. Joining us now is Matthew Lesh, who is the Director of Public Policy and Communications at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Matthew, good afternoon. Peace upon you. And thank you so much for agreeing to um, speak to us here on the Draft Hub Show. Thank you for having me. Now, in your article, you argue that rent controls would be a disaster for London. I want to ask you, are there any circumstances or situations in which you believe that rent controls could be effective or appropriate? Or is that something that you consider them you know, to be fundamentally flawed? Look, unfortunately, it would be great if we could live in a world where we just said, you're paying too much for rent, let's just prevent and cap them and, and just make sure that nobody pays too much rent. Unfortunately, while that is going to be good for people who are, are currently renting, um, we know from extensive economic theory as well as past experience all over the world that it has absolutely disastrous uh, medium to long-term consequences on the rental market. What it, what it would do in practice would mean a lot of landlords would simply pull out of the rental market um, and, and put up their properties for other use. It would certainly discourage the building of new properties in London, which is really the, the the central issue here, which we can get into, which is the failure to build anywhere near enough to fulfill the, the kind of demand of the population growth we're seeing in the UK. So you'd end up with a lot less housing. Um, you'd end up making it much harder for people to move to London, particularly uh, those who don't have any kind of particular connection or background to be able to get access to one of the relatively few available properties. It would mean landlords would be making quite arbitrary selective decisions and and potentially even discriminatory decisions about who they let into their properties. It would mean uh, that landlords would put less effort into ensuring that properties are, are well-maintained. Uh, you, you see the, the kind of extensive evidence here. I mean, the, the, the classic case here of, of rent control is somewhere in Sweden, where you literally have to wait decades to get a rent-controlled 
apartment. Some people went up to 35 years. So it sounds nice in theory, and it, it will be nice for some people who, who do get those rent-controlled apartments. But I think overall, it would have quite negative consequences for London. And it would certainly hurt the very idea of London, which which in my mind is a place that, that's open to people of all backgrounds and 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 wants people to move into the city. Now, you uh, alluded to that just very briefly here. I want to ask you about any specific examples or any case studies from other countries or cities where this has been implemented, which again, you believe that demonstrate you know that negative impact. You mentioned Sweden um, briefly there. Well, I mean, you can look at all over the world where rent controls have been tried that haven't worked. Uh, Sweden is a good example here where there are rent controlled apartments available, but you just have to wait a very long time for them um, just because inevitably there's not enough. And the, the general conclusion here is that if you're not from Sweden, if you're an immigrant or you're a new arrival, it just becomes very hard to get into the likes of Stockholm's um, property market for renting. Um, it's a similar kind of outcome in places like New York, which have tried it. They've got over 125,000 homeless people in New York as a lack of housing supply, similar situation in places in California where there's also rent control. I mean, what rent control does in practice, it, it kind of locks existing tenants into where they're currently living at a lower cost than the, the market rent. Again, great for those people, but for, for other people who, who might want access to the properties, it's really bad. And it's absolutely terrible when it comes to ensuring that continued supply, which is what we really need. Now that we've um, know a little bit about the problem, of course, we have to look at some solutions. So in your opinion, what alternative policies or measures could be implemented to you know, address the housing affordability crisis here in the UK, which has been going on for, for quite some time now? And because we're speaking about London, I want to ask you specifically about what is it that we can do here in London to address this look, issue? Look, I think that is a central question. Rent controls are a distraction from what is the fundamental fact of our housing crisis, which is we have not built anywhere near enough homes compared to what we need. Um, UK-wide, we're talking about 4.3 million fewer homes compared to the European average. Um, in the last 20 years, specifically in London, and the reason why it's so bad in London is actually a sign of London's success, which is that London's population has, has grown about 25% in the last 20 years. But unfortunately, the, the number of houses have only grown by 15%. Now, when you get a mismatch between supply and demand in any industry, the, the cost will go up. So what we, we really need to think about here is how can we encourage local councils to approve as many new homes as possible in London? Um, how can we ideally do it in a way that has local community support. This is always the challenge here when it comes to the housing debate, the, the, the so-called NIMBYs, the not in my backyard. It's that if you're an existing homeowner, you have no reason to want more people to live in your area. But of course, that undermines the, the capacity of London to, to grow and to succeed. And in practice, it means for someone who is renting in London, most of any kind of additional earnings you get in London are taken away in rent. So what we need is is basically a, a national mission or at least a citywide mission to build as many homes as possible um, as quickly as possible. And, and that, that means undertaking um, quite fundamental reforms to the way our planning system operates so that, that we can enable that to take place. I think in practice in London, it's going to be um, densification, particularly in the outskirts of London. If, if everywhere in London was as dense as Pimlico, for example, which is, you know, beautiful four or five story um, homes architecturally 
designed um, something that you know, nobody goes to Pimlico and says that's disgusting. If we could do that kind of density everywhere in London, that 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 moderate density, we would have millions of new homes. We probably wouldn't have a housing crisis. So it's really about mm. bringing that kind of medium density right throughout the city to it to enable people more people live here. You can also think about some other things, for example, being able to building around train stations in the green belt uh there's the discussion that you know particularly in the green belt around london um areas that aren't necessarily that green a lot of it's actually agricultural land it's, yeah. it's not kind of parks if you're able to build in the green belt um within kind of 15 minutes walking distance of train stations you could have a million new homes so so modifying our planning system just just to link up those houses with transport where people want to live in london the, the most you know productive and, and and prosperous part of the uk could be hugely beneficial um to 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 london and, and to the country at large now speaking about the country at large i mean i know from personal experience that the housing market and rental landscape here in in the capital can differ I mean, significantly, hugely from other parts of the UK. I I know, um, uh, looking at some of the uh, some of the market in Bristol, for example, or Cardiff area. Um, I mean, differences that you some sometimes you you don't even understand why and how. So, do you think that the argument against rent controls apply universally across the country, or are there any, you know, specific regional considerations that that we need to take into account? Well, I mean, it, it is important to think about the UK housing crisis as, as regionally based because it's about where people, the, the, the fundamental truth, where uh, people want to live. Uh, and more, more people want to live in cities, more people want to live in London. Of course, it's not just London. You know, there's, there's also increasing housing costs in other cities. Think of Manchester, for example, where it costs a lot more to live um, than, than in, in the surrounding areas or, or, or more rural areas. Um, you're going to end up with the same issues with rent control no matter where you try them. You know, you, you could put rent control in a place where you set the rent control at a level that doesn't actually have a meaningful economic impact, which is to say, if, you know, the average rent in an area is 500 pounds and you set the rent control at a thousand pounds, well, of course, the rent control is not going to do very much. It's not going to do that much damage, but it's also going to not do that that much good. So I'm not sure rent control would make more or less sense anywhere. Um, it, it would wouldn't really matter too much. It, it's more just those local dynamics about demand and supply that are determining what the price is, uh, whether or not there's more people who want to live in an area, whether then there's, there's housing available. Lastly, Matthew, I want to ask you, do we, I mean, we, we share this planet. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's other car, parts of the world, other countries, Not I'm, I'm not talking about, um, you know, uh, the Middle East, where everything is, you know, wonderful and uh, safety and security and whatnot. Not closer to home, Europe. Let's say, let's say Europe. So we have France, we have Germany, we have the Scandinavian countries. Is there any model, anything that you have come across where you think, you know, what well, this is something that we can apply here? But why, why are we not doing that? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. I mean, what what can we learn from other jurisdictions about how they they manage their their housing and their planning systems? I mean. Fundamentally, that there is this truth in a lot of other places that they, they don't have necessarily as as many restrictions on the ability to build houses. You know, some, somewhere like you know, one extreme is somewhere like Houston in the US, where it, it, there's there's pretty much no restrictions on being able to continue to build out the city, and and the quality of housing is quite strong, yeah. and the, the cost is, of housing is, sorry, is quite low. Is that is that because of space? Do we have lack of space? Well, I mean, this, there is a question in, in Houston's case, there is, you know, there's lots of space in Texas, you know, they sure. can continue building out and out. Um, you know, that's one particular model. I mean, it, it's, it's worth remembering only a few percentage of the UK is actually built up. 
So with housing, so you, you have this perception that, you know, the, is the UK full? How dense is the UK? Of course, if you live in Italy, it does feel relatively full, but by international standards, it's, it's not the densest place in, you know, in the world by any stretch of the imagination. You, you can always have slightly more density or you can use slightly more um, land. A lot of what the UK is, is, is kind of heavy agricultural land. Some of it's green, you know, uh, parks and, and forests and, and whatnot that, you know, rightfully should be protected. But there's also this question about whether or not you do open up some of that kind of agricultural land on the outskirts of London to, to, to development that, that, that could potentially be a better use of that. So the question about, you know, expanding out, like making London a, a bit bigger that way, as well as, as densifying London, um, I think we could probably learn from some of those experiences about expanding the city um, if, if we we want to deal with the housing issue because unless we're going to come to grips with the fact that there's just simply more people who want to live in London uh it's a great city it's a place where you can find better paying high quality great jobs um and and that's just going to attract generations generations of people from all over the UK and all over the world um we get, for, for as long as that is the case for as long as London is a great city it will be expensive to live here um if we don't build the housing that's necessary to fulfill that demand director of public policy and communications at the Institute of Economic Affairs Matthew Lesh with us on the line Matthew I want to thank you very much for your time and uh, thank you for really appreciate you coming on wonderful to talk to you thank you so much once again there we had brother Raza um talking to Matthew Lesh uh, about some possible solutions to a very controversial topic. It is a topic we will visit again, but we are coming up to the hour. Um, when we come back, we're going to be talking about... Brother Raza, what are we going to be talking about quickly? We are going to be talking about Islam and has it be lost its uh, reality to the truth. We'll be back after 5 o'clock news. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Welcome back to Friday afternoon drive time show with myself, Kayoon, Brother Raza, and Brother Daniel, and we're going to go to our second topic of the afternoon, Brother Raza. And before you wonder, I have been here all day long, but um, well, with yeah. a slight delay. But I'm just saying, I was just enjoying the conversation so much between the two of you. Brother so Daniel, did you did you hear that? All, all I have. Long, I, 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 I actually hear. just wanted to continue with the, with the second topic. So before <laughs> no, no, no. this was not I an opportunity all for day you long. to. <laughs> but I have no life. I live here. Let, let, yeah, let's leave it at that. I think. Yeah. In the Holy Quran, God Almighty states, "This is from chapter three, verse one eighty nine to one ninety. Verily, in the creation of the heaven and the earth, and in the alternation." Of the night and of the day are signs for men of understanding. They who, standing, sitting, or reclining, bear a land mind and reflect on the heavens and the earth, saying, O our Lord, thou hast not created this in vain. 
The topic that we are going to be talking about today in this part of the program is about Islam and if it has become less rational since the golden age that we talk about in the medieval ages, what exactly went wrong? I mean, this was a faith that started in the middle of the desert, a faith that valued intellectualism and a faith that um, wasn't against modernity. It was derailed by various geopolitical and religious forces, as was the case with pretty much every other religion in the world as well. However, one unique aspect of Islam and the religion of Islam is that it was the promise of God Almighty that I will be the one who will be sending reformers. I will be the one who will be sending people of understanding, people of reason, people of faith, people of divinely guided nature who will be the ones to correct faith as it deviates from the right path. However, there will be one specific person in the latter days who will be divinely commissioned, divinely guided and divinely appointed to correct everything else that nobody else was able to correct. And that, as we believe, was the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the Prophet Messiah, Hazrat Mr. Ghulam Ahmad, on whom be peace. But more of that in the later part of the program. I have a question for both of you gentlemen, and it, I'm sure you will help me answering this. We are talking about a religion that came 1400 years ago, and over the centuries, new innovations, traditions, customs has kind of been added to the belief system and it's been wrapped up together and called faith and this is how it's been practiced. But mm. over the centuries, the past few centuries, most Muslim countries where Islam was practiced was always under colonized rule, colonized rule. Yeah. So would it be correct to think that a lot of a lot of beliefs that other faiths had which were um kind of preached and they were not enforced but were continuously um told to you over a period of time as part of the colonizing effect um and and uh, part of colonizing was also preachers were sent hmm. priests were sent all over the world that bits of beliefs of maybe Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, <clears throat> they were also adapted by Muslims who were living under these colon under these colonized areas? Okay, I, so I, I'm going to give a very direct answer to this um, uh, because I, to me this is um, a, this is traditional thinking uh, within the third world, I will say, okay. not particularly between uh, which is conspiracies, which is blaming the other. I think we should start. And if you hear me out, so I, I think the, the process of degeneration started centuries earlier hmm. than colonization was even a name. No, no, it was just an example. I'm just saying, over centuries, yeah, different people came and and new innovations, as I said, different cultures, and. The traditions and, and habits from cultures were adapted into a faith. No, of course, there's no question that that it was and must have been, and because you know that's how cultural, that's how how nations evolve, and mm -hmm. it's a continuum, and and uh, that must have happened. But to uh, you know uh, to discuss the topic at hand, which is you know when and how did this uh, you know we had the golden age when 
scientific progress was hmm. a thing within the Islamic world, and then it was not. So what really happened? So that process of degeneration, I think, started within the Islamic world. And there was a huge fight at that time between school, two schools of thought. One was a rational, rational school of thought, and the other was the dogmatic school of thought. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately for Islam, what happened at that time was the, that the, uh, the priests or the people who were uh, championing the, the dogma won, and they defeated the, the rationalist, and the rationalist then sort of went into um, a rational argument or the search for rationalism or the search for science and truth and knowledge became, um, uh, became a secondary thing uh, within Islam and evaporated uh, as a result of that fight over, over centuries. Define dogma <clears throat> for the benefit of the listener. As a Muslim, one would say, okay, yep, but which two schools of thoughts are you referring to? So, so, so dogma would be that uh, that um, that it's that it's mentioned in the Bible, for example, mm -hmm. that um, uh, heaven and earth was created in seven days. Yeah. Okay, and you take that literally, literally, okay, and and you say that okay, it's seven days, and therefore it's you know it cannot be anything else but that. Adam is the first man. As so, so it's rational. So, so it's metaphoric and literal. So, one went down the, the literal sense, and instead of going down and looking at the commentary and the rational thought process behind a certain verse, they they so the Mutazilites and yeah. the and the followers of Al-Razi, there's a huge fight uh, mm. in between between these two schools of thought mm -hmm. um, in in the ninth tenth century, starting that uh, sort of time period. That is where this this degeneration started, and that is a, is how the death of rationalism um, uh, within, that, that Islam. Was the, within Islam yeah. result, that was the result of that, until it was brought back by the promised Messiah. Um, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. I think th th your question, as Brother Daniel mentioned, it goes even further back. So colonization was something that, what was that, like 200, 300 years ago, 400 years ago? Go tops 500 years ago. Yeah, no, but, In but whatever form. to me, it was just, that was talking about it from recent history. Yeah. And, and, and the reason that thought came to mind was the belief in um, the belief in the program we did last week, the yeah. belief in the coming of the Messiah. It's like, to me, I always find it strange that a lot of, the, a lot, most of the Muslim world believe in Jesus being raised. That's and, dogma, and, uh, exactly. Which is very in, in line with Christian thought process. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and, and which that, is dogma again. It, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly, and and hence why no, I no resort to science. I mean, yeah. I mean, how, just imagine, just think for a second that science says E is equal to mc square, which is which is the the the, the truth as we know it, which means that nobody can travel more than uh, the speed of light, and yet we we believe mm -hmm. billions believe that Jesus with his body mm. was actually transported up to whatever heaven. Yeah, blame it on the miracle. Anyway, yeah. so, so the point that you were making, I, I, yeah. I, uh, if you go back to the very early days of Islam, I think this was in the time of the rightly guided caliphs. What happened was that because a lot of people were converting to Islam, Islam was spreading very rapidly. So you had, one, the Arabs, and within the Arabs you had the, the tribes that were surrounding the Prophet uh, of Islam, may the, uh, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And because it was, it originated in Mecca, it originated in Medina. So you had 
the the language you had the accent you had the dialect you had the understanding of of the faith and of the language itself in which the holy quran was revealed now you are expanding a faith you have people of different backgrounds but different culture joining that faith and it's a natural phenomena this happens everywhere and with everything that when you convert when you come into something new you bring your old habits with you you bring your customs your tradition your culture you bring that with you so what happened in that time is that um, for example caliph umar may allah be pleased with him and 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 all the rightly guided caliphs you had to come up um i'm th- i'm talking about the text of the holy quran for example just 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 one example people were reading it in their own accents in their own dialects which is why the text that you have of the holy quran today with the lines and the and the dots and mm-hmm. what not this did not exist back in the days so the zair and the zabar the, as they the, call it the fatha the yeah. damma the kathra so all the, the pronunciation how do you say a or do you say u mm-hmm. right do you say ba or do you say bu yeah this is something for the non arabs that was added later on okay so there is no mixing up there's no changing of the quranic text at all but if you go back for example the the subcontinent today mm-hmm. Pakistan claims or um India even in India some of the population that claims to be muslim that that affiliate themselves to the religion of Islam I'm thinking of marriage ceremonies mm. there are so many customs and traditions that are part of the muslim marriage which have nothing to do with Islam mm. so that's culture being added so it's an it's a natural thing that you bring some of that with you however where do you go what do you do to find out exactly okay what is part of this and what is not okay a question that comes to mind is when let's say people from a tribe a culture a community they let's say they convert to islam isn't it isn't it just by default that these people who have lived in a certain community certain culture who practice certain traditions and mm. customs that they will mix yes so it's 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 not something that one does deliberately no no it, of course it, not it Because just it's, happens it's, by it's default it's a lack of knowledge right it's a lack of knowledge and it's a lack of training mm-hmm. right so you again we're talking about a sweep of nations mm-hmm. so islam is just is sweeping the nations sweeping the countries and is it's at a pace which nobody could have thought of mm-hmm. So of course you will have Christians you will have Jews you have Hindus and people of other faith convert into this and bring their own thing but if there is no education if there's no training of those people to differentiate what is t- culture what is religion what is faith what is not faith what is your faith old faith and what is what is Islam saying then there will be things like that happening mm. it's it's a natural thing however the question that we're talking about is that in 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 this whole process of development of 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 these sciences and this clash between dogma and 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 uh, Irrational. rationality yeah. what role did islam play in this hmm. or where did we go wrong in in all of this process as you know daniel mentioned this clash between certain caliphs within you know that golden age of islam what they had to say about what their authority was am i the one who is going to decide what is this or what is not same issue that we have today if you go to one cleric if you go to one um scholar you ask him what do you say about this he will issue you a, a fatwa and and eat it right you don't like that fatwa you go to someone else 
a question again. Brother Daniel, you talked of the Golden Age. Why do we call it the Golden Age within Islam? Because we always talk of academia. Mm. How does that academic excellence and and academic pioneering relate or connect with the faith of Islam? I think the connection is uh, is is it's it's inherent mm. within islamic thought islam is all about uh, the holy quran talks about reflection all the time um you know there are verses after verses after verses which which say reflect think so, about so all your of these pioneers and all of these discoveries they were made from the teachings that one oh, and, and it was uh, all of these people, all of these scholars and these educationalists and academics, they were getting their inspiration and their teachings from the Holy Quran and from the teachings of Islam. Obviously, yes. Absolutely. So, so that's, but unfortunately, the dispute that actually then arose between especially the Mutazilites mm -hmm. and uh, the followers of Al-Ghazali. So if I, you know, just to read out. So Al-Ghazali was one of the most uh, significant, this is on Wikipedia, philosophers, jurists and theologians of a period in Islamic history, which easily ranks as one of the most intellectually productive in world history. Al-Ghazali was known for his skepticism about philosophy's mm. relationship to religious thought. Mm. Um, Mutazilites, on the other hand, were the people who believed in religious, in in rational thought, and unfortunately, um, the the followers of Al Ghazali won that debate, um, which lasted over 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 centuries. I mean, it's um, not something that happened overnight, and 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 that unfortunately six led centuries. To the, We're talking about a period of six centuries. Now, again, the, the the point that you mentioned is very important because, in my opinion, from what I've read and f from from the research a little bit that that I've done, th this was the problem. Mm. That first of all, so twofold. One is you lose your original source, yep. meaning that, and, and it's normal. Look, when we as humans, when we progress in something, the societies that we live in now, isn't isn't it the majority of the people that think that oh, this is our doing? we've come this far this is our doing we've achieved this and no one else and nothing else right so in that time as well the during the later periods when everything was kind of mixed up as a mumble jumble of everything you had people from you know the the greek uh, uh, philosophies you had the 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 western and and the european philosophies texts were being translated texts were being being, being um, you know, adapted and whatnot. This this conflict that arose between these two parties was a result was a result of this. You had in the beginning times and during the time of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, where he clearly mentioned there's a, there's a narration. I think you we know all of this that there was two sittings. Right? That's right yeah. There was two uh, sittings. One were busy in the in the worship of God Almighty, and one were scholars. They were talking about you know the the, the creation of God Almighty mm -hmm. and whatnot. And the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, where did he go? He didn't go with those who were worshipping. He went and sat with the scholars. That's right. Because he said yeah. the, the pen of the scholars might hear than, than anything else. And again, as Brother Daniel mentioned in the Holy Quran, over and over and over, over again, God Almighty is encouraging you to look. There's a very beautiful passage in the Holy Quran which says that God has created this, 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 this. Now tell your vision, tell your sight to go and look. Find for faults. You will find that your your sight will come to you returned fatigued 
because there's no flaw in the creation of God Almighty. And that was the basis of how those scholars in the Golden Age, those six centuries that we're talking about from the 8th to the 14th century, this is what they focused on. Plus, it didn't matter if you were a Muslim at that time or not. When the Holy Quran speaks that you need to have justice based on the fact that it's just justice, regardless of who it is. Mm. When the Holy Quran talks about enmity, you shouldn't have enmity just because, you know, they don't agree with they you or whatever, right? You, yeah. Have that common sense, have that um, the, tolerance, tolerance yeah. have that integrity mm. to stand up for what's right and what's wrong. Coupled with all of these things, you had a society where everybody flourished based on the abilities and, and, and the qualities that they had. Mm. Not because of so-and-so was related to so-and-so. No nepotism. Nothing you know, related with religion. Nothing to do with who you are as a person. No. It's based on your abilities and your qualities. Two more points that I want to make uh, to answer the question that you earlier put, which is, you know, where, where did they get their motivation from? These, the, these the, the reason thinkers. I ask is because I have friends, non-Muslim friends, and, and they actually ask, they say, well, we understand that, you know, th there was this golden age. And they find they can't see the correlation. The linkage. Yes. So let me give it to you. So, uh, again, Wikipedia, Mutazilism was a theological movement that appeared in early Islamic history and flourished in Basra and Baghdad between 8th to 10th centuries. Its adherents are called the Mutazila or Mutazilites. The Mutazila school developed an Islamic type of rationalism, partly influenced by ancient Greek philosophy, hmm. based around three fundamental principles. So these are their, these were their basic principles. The oneness of God, justice of God, and the human freedom faction, um, and the creation of Holy Quran. So these are the were the their fundamental principles. So they believed in oneness of God, Tawheed. They believed in uh, in the creation of Quran, and they believe in human freedom of action. So Quran and and God. So yeah, very much Muslims. Yeah. And uh, the other example, um, uh, the other sort of point that I wanted to uh, to make was that um, um, you know if you if you look at the um, the history of the Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, community as well, uh, the fourth caliph. Of the community, he writes. Uh, you know, it's written in the book uh, "A Man of God." Um, although I read that many, many years ago, but from memory, um, uh, it, you know, he writes there that um, when he was eight or nine years old, you know, he began to think, "Does God exist?" Mm. So this is the fourth caliph mm. when he was when he was eight or nine years old, and uh, and he began to question, uh, "Does God really exist? We don't see God. Does he exist?" And then uh, he had a vision in which he saw the whole world sort of being compressed into um, uh, into into a uh, um, into a globe, mm. and and everybody and and every particle of the earth was. Uh, was reciting the name of God. And then the other example that comes to mind immediately is that of the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Again, you know, um, uh, uh, probably the most um, uh, scholarly person of the last century. The promised son, yes. Uh, the promised son indeed as well. Um, uh, and, and this was mentioned, I think, in one of the uh, Friday sermons of the, the current leader of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And he said that, you know, uh, one day he was... Uh, he, he was... Um, 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 he was on his bed and he, he began to think, you know, uh, what is the limit of these stars? I, I can see these stars, but I, is what's the limit? Where's the thought, beginning? Where's, where's the, the beginning? Exactly. Yeah. And they said, well, okay, so they, they, I can see these stars, but there must be some stars uh, behind them. these stars. And then what's behind that? Uh, maybe 
you know, mm. more stars beyond those stars as well. And beyond, what's, what's beyond that? More stars beyond those stars. And, and that's the rational thinking at the moment. That's mm. what scientists tell you as well. So if that's the case, then you know, it's unlimited. God is unlimited then. And, and uh, you know, so, uh, you know, so mm. he had those thoughts and he, so he, he rationalized mm. within his mind uh, uh, um, the meaning of that, the, that thought process. The, exactly, the meaning yeah. of God yeah. and, and the existence of God. That's right, definitely. Now, joining us here on the Raptime Show is no stranger to the audience of Voice of Islam, Dr. Muhammad Iqbal, who is um, a voice that you may be familiar with if you listen to the Living History program. And we welcome him to the Raptime Show. Assalamu alaikum, peace upon you, and welcome to uh, yeah, the Raptime Show. Assalamu thank you for having me. Lovely hearing you guys and your voices. Dr. Muhammad Iqbal, always a pleasure to have you on. Now, this is kind of your expertise, um, the topic that we are talking talking about from that historic point of view why do we i mean we brother Guillaume asked that question and we tried to answer why do you why do we remember and speak about that time in the history of islam that you know those six centuries as as the golden age what what was so golden about it well i i think every civilization has a period which it defines as the most important the golden the best etc uh, we certainly do that as Muslims, and the Chinese, of course, would do that as would the Europeans, etc. But it's quite clear, even for independent, you know, world historians, that that period was not just special for the Muslims, but it was special for the whole world. Uh, quite often, that period when Islam came is noted as when the world was in darkness, and Islam really uh, put a big torch. Uh, for the whole world, not just uh, the Muslims. And if you think of it from a Muslim point of view specifically, you know, here were Arab nomads, ignored by all the major civilizations, the Persians, the Greeks, and others as, you know, backward people, mm. don't want to bother with them, <laughs> uneducated, etc. And yet, when the Holy Prophet came, and within a short period, obviously, the revelation of the Holy Quran, which was central to everything that happened afterwards, uh, got revealed from 610 to 632, okay, over a 22-year period or so. But what's remarkable is that the discipline that he instilled in his companions and those around was amazing. And those companions, within a period of 30 years, what we call is Khalifat al-Rashidun, the first four righteous caliphs, they took the Arabs from nowhere to having the whole of Persia under them, the whole of the Levant, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, all those areas, and up to Egypt. For most empires, it used to take them hundreds and hundreds of years, just in terms of the geographical area to capture. But it wasn't just the geography, it's what they brought with them. And that was justice, that was a unity amongst whether you were black, white, Persian, Greek, or whatever. And as you mentioned earlier, it unified people under Islam, and the Holy Prophet made all his companions and all those who followed appreciate that you have to seek knowledge. Here is the Holy Book, this will be your guide. But you have to seek knowledge, and what they did was they brought all Chinese knowledge, Persian knowledge, Greek knowledge, Indian knowledge, you name it, all together. And that's what created this golden age, and it was unique, and it was magnificent. And certainly after those 30 years, uh, the expansion during the Umayyad and Abbasid uh, Caliphates, you know, that's documented, and it was truly amazing. Baghdad was the jewel in the crown of the whole world. Dr. Iqbal, a question comes to mind. It's Kayyum here, peace be on you. Um, 
you, you mentioned the golden age of Islam, and then you rightfully said that it's not just Islam who had the golden age, but other Europeans and, and the Chinese and, and India and everyone. Is it Islam? Is it only the Islamic, um, the six, six centuries of golden age, that we attribute the success of this golden age to God Almighty? Or, or was that also done in other golden ages of other cultures and faiths? I think in terms of achievements, it was truly magnificent. And that's why Europe then inherited that and they got us to where we are right now. However, when you look at it separately, the Indians also had their golden ages, the Chinese their own, etc. So all the, and because God Almighty has sent prophets to, uh, you know, the Holy Quran tells us that all parts of the world have been sent prophets, and of course, great golden ages arose. But this was the time to unify mankind, to bring them all together, regardless of their religious affiliations or color, or ethnicity, or whatever. And from that point of view, it was unique. And in terms of what they contributed in terms of uh, philosophy, you know, theol theological, philosophical arguments, the sciences, the architecture, you name it, they made a massive change, and Europe built on that later on. So from that point of view, we are, you know, reaching the start now, but that was largely driven by the Muslim civilization. So it was very special, yes, for Muslims, but I think it was very special for the whole. For example, the zero. You know, without the zero, you you can't run industry, you can't reach the moon, you can't run your computers or whatever. And it was the Muslims that utilized that zero, and there were many, many other things as well. But just but just to not take away the the zero wasn't Muslims. It was in it was it was the uh, was it was it was it Muslims who the, who? the Indians the, the Indians had it and yes. also the South Americans uh, had it well before any of them and the Chaldeans going to Sumeria etc. But listen. None of them knew how to what, properly utilize it. That's it, exactly. They, they had it, but they didn't know how to utilize it. And yeah. It was Kharizme and many other, Al-Kindi and many others, who actually utilized it. So this is a point that's being made that, oh, no, no, they've just borrowed it from the Indians. Yeah. Yes, the Indians had it, but they were not able to use it in the way Kharizme said, wow, this is transformational. And there's a whole thing. By the way, in my living history, I cover this specifically in one of the programs. So please, by all means, mm -hmm. you can look into it in more detail. Wonderful. Now, Dr. Iqbal, when we talk about this period, um, it it does come to an end, doesn't it? It does, unfortunately, but all civilizations go through phases, and the Holy Prophet Sallallahu had, you know, predicted this, prophesied that to us, and this is what happens when a degree uh, of complacency and a degree of arrogance sets in any mm. civilization, and to some extent, that's what uh, you know happened to the Muslims in many ways. Uh, from a, a purely rational and historical point of view, uh, Ibn Khaldun Yemeni's Makadma, uh, he sums it up really. Uh, that look, there are Europeans studying sciences and this and physics and whatever. What's it got to do with us? Why do we want to bother with all that? And that's the bit of complacency and uh, you know, a bit of arrogance that slipped into the Muslim world. And of course, Europe uh, built on that. And then, of course, there was the whole philosophical argument, you know, that uh, you mentioned the Mutazalites, etc. Well, the, the Abbasids played a big part in opening the debate between the rationalists and, you know, the more the theological-based ones. And Al-Ghazali probably was one of the biggest contributors uh, that probably made the shift more towards the theological end that the Muslim world went. 
also the battle, you know, we talked about Kalam, Mutazalite. Just to give you an example, you talked about, you know, the creation of the Quran, etc. That's more complex. Take simply origin of the universe, hmm. right? The philosophers, uh, including uh, Ibn Rashid, etc., they believed, as in Aristotle, that the universe was eternal and was there all the time. But Al-Ghazali and Al-Kindi and uh, Ibn Sina, etc., they believed that, no, the universe had an origin, it had a start. And guess what? In the 19th, 20th century, what did science prove? That the universe had a start. And these were the important discussions that were taking place. And Al-Ghazali, sometimes people blame him that, oh, he took uh, Islam too much away from philosophy and rationality. And no, he didn't. He was a great... But it was the others who followed him after that. They basically took everything literal and they forgot the rational discussion because they wanted to throw away the Greek and the Roman influence. And sadly, over the many centuries going up to European colonization, we just got deeper and deeper into literal interpretation, mm. into fatwas by all sorts of ulemas and mullahs blaming the others for not being Muslim, true Muslim, not understanding the Quran. And here we are now. We've got fatwas being given left, right, and center. But the reality is, Ibn Rushd was a true Muslim, and um, Al-Ghazali was a true Muslim. But in that stage, Islam still had an open debate, and now that debate is shut. And you can see the damage in the Muslim world because of that. Lastly there, Dr. Mahmoud Iqbal, you, you just alluded to this just very briefly. I want to ask you about the relationship that was there between this, the, the, these scholars, these ulama, these scientists, um, and and the leadership of, of that time. How crucial, how important was it for um, for them to have that kind of leadership that supported them um, and how how did that look like? Because as we've said before, and, and we know, it was regardless of what faith you belonged to, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the, uh, you know, the Abbasids in particular uh, developed this uh, debate and dialogue and discussion in a big way. But the Umayyads uh, also, especially during the Spanish period of the Umayyad dynasty in Spain, they allowed that to develop as well. And there was a lot of free thinking expression, you know, books written, which are amazing books to read. Uh, and that's what, in a sense, you know, that's what science tells you to do as well. Look, bring forward your hypotheses, bring forward your theories, experiment, prove and show what the differences are. And those great Muslims had a similar mind that even in theology, you should be able to have a debate and discuss. Now, of course, in the Muslim world, you can't discuss anything. Mm. <laughs> you get your head chopped off, which is very, very sad, I think. And we, we need to, um, you know, as a, a members of the Amdi Muslim community, of course, we have a totally different approach. And um, you can see the contribution Professor Abdul Salam has made to sciences and philosophy and thinking. And, uh, and that is what we value, and that's the path we take. But not all of the Muslim world, unfortunately, follows that. Certainly not all the Muslim nations at the moment and we can only pray and hope that will improve wonderful Dr. Muhammad Iqbal as always a great pleasure and a great honor for um, you know, to join us Jazakallah thank you very much for, for, for taking out some time to, to my us, pleasure thank you for having me take care brother Rada just yeah. for the benefit of a listener what's the term fatwa so fatwa is basically a religious um, how would you say that uh, it's, it's called an edict mm-hmm um, but it's a religious, um, I don't know how to, how to explain. It's not Basically, a command, you say it's, it, it's, it's so somebody, uh, you have muftis, mm. mufti is the one who issues a fatwa. 
I mean, the the most um, recent and probably the most famous example that we find in recent history. It's a ruling. Uh, it's a ruling. Yeah, yeah. You can yeah. say it's a ruling. It's a religious ruling. Was uh, about um, Salman Rushdie. Hmm. I mean, that's probably where Eat. it. Yeah, but that's where where it came to the surface. Uh, where even people here in the West they found out about a fatwa. So he was basically um, uh, ruled to be. So it's a supposed killed. formal legal opinion th- from a theology perspective. A the- it's a theological, uh, a theological ruling. Ruling. Yeah. yeah. But depending on which school of thought you come from, is is recognized. Yeah. So it's not that across the board. Who you who you recognize? Yeah. 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 As, so that that goes back again. So there's four major schools of thought in 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 Islam, and depending on which person you ask, and depending on which scholar of theirs, so Imam Ahmad bin mm-hmm. Hanbal, Shafi, Maliki, mm-hmm. whoever they go back to, and what their ruling was, and they derive that ruling from from those scholars. Yeah, the the scholars you mentioned, isn't that part and parcel of this discussion? It it is, but it's not the problem in my eyes. Okay, right. Define that. I mean, just for my benefit and for the best benefit of, because when 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 one thinks, oh, four different schools of thoughts within, within, yeah, but the, within Islam, yeah, yeah, then you'd think, well, hold on, yeah, how is that rational? You, you're absolutely right. But the 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 the, the problem here is, or, or the, the the answer to this is, mm-hmm. they derive their knowledge, they derive their rulings on the same source. Same source. Right? Okay. The same source. Okay. But we're talking about, I mean, th- these are not huge differences. Sure. We're not talking about, oh, the, this this group prays this way and the other one prays completely different way. No. These are minute differences. It's, it's also regional. about, yeah, and it's about, uh, to answer your question, it's about the point of view. It's about how you how you look at something, how you approach it, something. Glass half full versus glass half empty. No, the, the reason I mentioned, because... Uh, People who criticize Islam hmm. from a mischief point of view, who who read certain bits of Islam and then they come back with, well, hold on, you've got four different meanings of the same thing. Do, do you get me? It, so it's it's it it's important that we deal, and and, and I'm, hmm. I'm thankful that you've answered that question. That the most important thing is that the source is exactly the same. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's the interpretation. Which, That's right. Which which is different, yeah. and interpretation will be different. Yes, because different people will interpret. A, you know, I I will look at a situation and interpret yeah. it in one way, and you will look at the same situation yeah. and 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 this is something interpret- that the Holy Quran has specifically said itself hmm. that you will find verses in the Holy Quran that are clear cut in meaning. There's no room for interpretation. It is what it is. Right. Yeah. Uh, God is Lord of all the worlds. Mm. He's the Lord of the day, day of day of judgment. Mm. There's no denying. There's no debating. There's no discussing this. Yeah. It is what it is. Mm. But then, when you talk about uh, certain other things, the Holy Quran says that they are subject to interpretation. Mutashabihat. Mm. Mutashabihat and muhkamat. So muhkamat are that's a that's a that's a commandment. Mm. It is what it is. And with the Shabiyat, you you can differ among these. But however, if it clashes with any other verses of the Holy Quran, if it clashes with the saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, if it clashes with his practice, then you have the answer. So in this regard, when it comes to our interpretation, the the, from the Prophet Messiah, the founder of the Amni Muslim community, has he has he has said that if we find any narrations, which again in the in, in the Islamic religion, some People they only adhere to the to the hadith, the the sayings of the Holy Prophet, um, and they will, if need be, discard verses of the Holy Quran. So the Prophet Messiah said, "No, with us, it's the Holy Quran is first and foremost. If there's anything that we find that goes against the teaching, 
we have no problem in in, in rejecting that. So, so the 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 original source, the most important source being that yeah. the Holy Book of God, the Holy Quran, and then the narrations, and then everything else. So and no, then uh, no else. it's the practice, then the narrations, Christians. and then the ijma, which is the the consensus of 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 the Muslims amongst each other. Wonderful. So the question then again, we, um, as Dr. Muhammad Iqbal mentioned, egotism, ignorance, and 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 pride, and everything that crept into these this golden age at the end, which led that cosmopolitan faith, which led that faith that you know was 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 a champion for for research and discovery and and and, and contemplation. To turn into something which was used as a weapon mm. against the masses, and that leads us what we are seeing in today's day and age. I mean, um, you've seen it. You've seen it in in the subcontinent or in, in different parts of the world. How it is wielded as as a as a very yeah. a dangerous and powerful political weapon. Political too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And 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 that is, I think, again the problem which also started. Uh, during the early centuries yeah. of Muslim rule, which is this amalgamation of um, uh, of religion and politics, and that um, is is I think also relates to the question that you were asking earlier about the four schools of thought, and and again you know a lot of people ask this question that you know we want or, or say that we want Sharia Sharia law for example that that that's a huge, uh, mm. uh, a, a big slogan in, in many Muslim countries. We want Sharia law, even in non-Muslim yeah, countries yeah. for that matter. Well, <laughs> even, yeah. United Kingdom. <laughs> one, of the, one of the biggest debates is, one of the biggest fears is well, when Sharia you, law is coming into United Sharia Kingdom. But, but, when, you know, but you might be the follower of Hanafi school of thought. Yeah. I might be a follow, the follower of Ashari school yeah. of thought. So which Sharia are we going to, I mean, is it going to be Hanafi Sharia? Is it going to be uh, Maliki Sharia? Is it going to be uh, some other Sharia? What, what Sharia are you going to enforce? So that is where I think uh, the the line has to be drawn that religion is the personal matter of everybody. What Whatever you practice, at the end of the day, you will be answerable to God Almighty. The state has nothing to do with the administration of religion, with the, the state, the, the body politic of Islam is secular. And therefore, the, the, uh, the ruler has to rule the country um, uh, from a... Uh, from a secular mindset, looking after the interest of all the people, uh, keeping all the people as equal. But the guiding tool would be faith. The guiding tool. But that is that, this is the Quranic thought yeah. that I'm talking about. Mm. So this is this is what the Quran says exactly. That uh, like Rahafiddin, mm. there is no compulsion in religion. How can you then uh, then make it compulsory for me mm. to follow Ashri school of thought uh, or a Malki school of thought? And impose that Sharia on me, whereas I would be, um, I would be a follower of another Sharia, or I might be another religion for that matter. Hmm. I might be a Christian, I might be a Jew, I might be an agnostic. How can you impose that? So it is exactly Quranic thought that dictates, that requires us to have uh, a secular polity. Joining us now is uh, Brother Asim Mumtaz. He is, uh, if you have listened to one of the shows uh, doing the Science Hour here on The Voice of Islam, we're going to talk to him and ask him a few more questions on this topic. Assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you, Brother Asim. How are you today? Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. I'm doing fine. 
thank you for inviting me to the show today. Jazakallah for joining us today. Now, I'm sure you speak about this on your show and we'll come to uh, the Science Hour later on. Um, is there a connection between religion and science? And if so, what is it? Yeah, this is a, is a very interesting uh, question, actually, the relationship between religion and science. And uh, typically people, when they think of these two topics, religion and science, they immediately think that there's a, a conflict between the two. Mm. Uh, but as, uh, as Muslims, as ethnic Muslims, this is uh, not what we, what we understand. So religion, uh, as far as we understand, as we know, is uh, the teaching uh, of God uh, Almighty, uh, the teaching, the words of uh, God Almighty. So through these teachings uh, from the Holy Quran, uh, we can we can uh, strive to become better people to understand our Creator much better. So on the other hand, we have science. So what is science? Science is fundamentally the the study of nature, so study of the physical world around us. Um, so, for example, we strive to comprehend how the universe is created. This is a part of uh, the science. So as the Muslims. When we are studying the creation, we, of course, we, we, we uh, as scientists, we, we study the creation of God. Um, so we're trying to uh, comprehend it and, and, and understand its purpose. So basically, what we what we what we as anti Muslims believe is that there's no there's no conflict between these two. One mm-hmm. is the the word of God Almighty, and one is the work of God Almighty. There can never be a a conflict between the two. Religion being the word of God Almighty and science being the creation, the mm. work. And so there should should never be uh, a conflict uh, uh, between the two. And the promised Messiah uh, on whom we peace, he, he said that um, uh, we, we, we proved that there is no opposition between science and religion. Uh, these the two are in complete harmony. However, uh, how far science might progress, it uh, it um, shall never be able to falsify mm. uh, the teachings and principles of Islam. So, um, so this is our our fundamental belief that the the, the two uh, are not in conflict. Um, and though from time to time there has been some misunderstanding, uh, and and sometimes this can be down to incorrect interpretation interpretation of the scripture mm. so for example uh, people have concluded that religion is um, at odds with science uh, for, for when when misinterpreting uh, literature uh, scripture sorry so when we take when we look at the holy quran or even in in the, the bible where it talks about the creation of the universe and it gives a certain period of time and people sometimes unfortunately interpret that be six days, literal days, but when you interpret it correctly and understand it to be six periods of time, where a period could be not the 24-hour period that we know, then um, then there's 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 no there's no conflict. Then you know each period could be many, arguably many many millions of years, as we understand. Um, so. Uh, yeah so so basically conflict can can occur but generally um we understand religion and science in this way hmm. 
Wonderful. I hope that answers the question. No, no, I, I, I fully uh, understand. I think the point that you mentioned about the, the word of God and the, and the works of God, um, is also interesting how the word of God came first and and God Almighty, you know, when we speak speak about Islam, it, he didn't just say, okay, this is what it is and deal with it. But he he encouraged the Muslims. He encouraged the reader over and over again that go look for yourself, look look about you know see for yourself about the works that I have created, the works that I have done, and then see if there is any contradiction between my word and my work. Um, Brother Asim, I want to ask you about those so the, the those those reasons, those teachings, those. Um, the the this 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 work and works of God in, within the religion of Islam. What is it that stands out uh, in regards to science and scientific knowledge? I mean, you've been um, uh, thinking and contemplating and, and and dealing with this for quite some time. What is one thing that you you think people should know about that they probably don't? It's a very uh, important and interesting question, and. What we learn from the Holy Quran, and it's it's been uh, repeated by others and also the late Professor Abdul Salam, that numerous verses of the Holy Quran emphasize the reflection on the laws of nature. And so we understand that there are approximately 750 verses of the Holy Quran that do emphasize uh, to reflect and think and ponder over the creation of uh, the universe and the laws of nature. So to try and um, use reason in the search of scientific knowledge. And there are many, many verses, I say, over 750, but I wanted to just uh, read one out, which is from chapter 3, verse 191 and 192, um, which, which relates to this topic. In the of the heavens and the earth, and in the alternation of the night and the day, there are indeed signs for men of understanding. Those who remember Allah standing, sitting, and lying on their sides, and ponder over the creation of the heavens and the earth, and say, Our Lord, Thou hast not created this universe in vain. Holy art Thou, save us then from the punishment of the fire. So this is just one example of many, many different verses in the Holy Quran where, uh, as Muslims, we're, we're actually motivated and uh, to, to to think and ponder and reflect and and study. So this is quite a unique uh, yeah. a unique feature of the teachings of Islam. Do you see that drive, that um, that inspiration? Um, in Muslims or, or you know people of religion and, and pursuit of scientific discoveries the way it used to be in the past? I mean, is there a place for religion or God in modern-day science with, with all its technological advancements? I mean, before you would observe for days and days, if not years and weeks. And nowadays, it's just you have a microscope and you can magnify it as much as you want. Yeah, this is a, another very interesting <laughs> question. Um so one one thing you you rightly point out that uh, in the the Middle Ages, the early part of Islam, there were great um, achievements in science by the early Muslims who really did uh, ponder over these <coughs> teachings of 
the Holy Quran and actually uh, dis- discovered new uh, s- uh, scientific uh, aspects. So there are many examples from the, those middle er- uh, Middle Ages, uh, Ibn Sina in medicine, hmm. um, Ibn al-Haytham in optics. He did great experimental work in optics. Um, uh, Al-Buruni who measured the circumference of the uh, the earth very accurately using um, algebra and so on. So the, these are just a few examples of those early Muslims that uh, discovered, made uh, great uh, scientific uh, discoveries. And uh, in the in the modern day, uh, we amongst uh, are you specifically say amongst the Muslim uh, uh, amongst the Muslims whether there are scientific discoveries being made. Mm. So, I mean, of course, um, Pr- Professor Abdul Salam being one very notable example on uh, in in his uh, work. Um, I mean, achieving the uh, you know the the the, the Nobel Prize um, and um, unifying the f- some fundamental forces of nature, um, but also I want to just point out actually recently, um, in fact, a few years ago, now um, the current head of the MD Muslim uh, community, uh, Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed. May Allah be his helper. He addressed uh, a conference, um, the MDM Muslim Research Association, their annual conference. I think it was a few years back now, 2019, in which he urged uh, the the MDM Muslims that we uh, need to uh, start to uh, strive as the Early uh, Muslim scientists strived mm. and follow their uh, follow their paths and the paths uh, laid out by them, um, and uh, and try and rekindle these um, uh, scientific achievements. And Last yeah. year, brother Asim, Jazakallah for that. I want to ask you about Science Hour. Tell us about what the program is all about. What are you doing right now? What's in um, you know the pipeline for the future? So the, the 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 program covers a whole host of uh, different uh, topics, uh, ranging from uh, science and Islam to uh, technology, uh, engineering, um, interviews with uh, current uh, researchers and academics. So there's a there's a variety. We cover uh, aspects relating to faith and religion but also contemporary uh, topics on uh, science um, and uh, scientific uh, developments. Um, so there's, a, there's a, quite a, a range of topics that are, that are typically, typically covered. Hmm. And uh, I would just uh, make a plug that we're always looking for good uh, um, you know, people who are interested in these topics to, to join us and... and um, Okay. Um, yeah. Give ideas. Anything that yeah. uh, you know, anything that you want to hear for as a listener. Why not? 
Jazakallah, Aston Zat. Thank you very much for joining us today, Brother Asim Mumtaz. You can listen to Science Hour on The Voice of Islam. If you want to know when the next show is going to be aired, go do check out our website, www.voiceofislam.co.uk. There's a sh- uh, schedule or a program section, and you can listen back to old programs as well as uh, find out when the next episode is going to be aired. Uh, Jazakallah again once, uh, once, uh, once again Thank you very much For joining us today Brother Asim Mumtaz On the line Assalamu alaikum um, Brother Raza you, you, um, I, I know probably We don't have Actually I know We don't have enough time To deal with this But inshallah We will come back to it Tomorrow 6pm Science hour by the way Yeah Cool, but you mentioned the four schools of thoughts within that, that with the same source, and I asked this question in in respect of rationality. Hmm. One of the schools of thought is it, it, yeah. Before you go, there, it's actually not. So it's not a separate school of thought, right? That's we that was going to be the question. A specific yeah. That that was going to be the 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 the, the question that where does fic yeah. Of Ahmadiyya come, which, yeah. which, which, where does that derive from? So that derives basically on this, on on the guidance and on the um, interpretation by the Promised Messiah himself. Okay. So the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Again, so we're talking about, as I said in the beginning of the program, um, who claimed to be the Promised Messiah, the reformer of the age, mm-hmm. um, foretold by pretty much every major religion and expected by every major religion, and again. So you had a time you well, we still have a time where you have the most bizarre interpretations, the most bizarre uh, innovations innovations yeah. within the religion of Islam, which have nothing to do with 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 what the Holy Quran or what the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him had to say about certain things. So in that, to have a voice of reason, to have something that tells you, okay, it is Islam is compatible with the 21st century. Islam is compatible with, with the West, with the East, with the North, with the South. The, and the reason I ask is because it's important when we come, when we talk of the topic that is, we are talking about, bringing Islam back to yeah. the rational thought process. And it the is. promised Messiah is the most relevant person. Yes. Um, when when it comes to not just Islam, yeah, but all the faiths, exactly. So uh, as we as we said, I think last week as well. Look, th- this is a religion. This is God's religion. Yeah, right. We're talking about a, every religion is God's religion, but no other religion was was vouchsafed that it will be, or the text of that of that faith will be protected by God Himself. Right. So if there, there's no one else that can send someone who can give you the right and the true meaning of what that text actually stands for, of what that teaching means, except someone who has been commissioned by God himself. And that's for us, the founder of the Amdi Muslim community. And on that note, we want to finish off um, this accord between science and religion. On that note, he says, and the promised Messiah uh, says, and I quote, the Holy Quran is a book so full of wisdom that it has brought out the accord between the principles of spiritual medicine, that is to say the principles of religion, which are truly spiritual medicine and physical medicine. And this accord is so fine that it opens the doors of hundreds of insights and verities. It is only that person who can interpret the Holy Quran truly and perfectly who ponders the principles laid down by the Holy Quran in the light of the system of physical medicine. On one occasion, I was shown in a vision some books of expert physicians which contained a discussion of the principles of physical medicine, among which was included the book of expert physician Karshi. And it was indicated to me that these books contained a commentary on the Holy Quran. 
this shows that there is a deep relationship between the science of bodies and the science of religion that they can that they confirm each other. When I looked at the Holy Quran, keeping in mind the books that dealt with physical medicine, I discovered that the Holy Quran sets out in excellent manner the principles of physical medicine. That's just one aspect on the medicine aspect, physical medicine. We are coming up to the hour. Thank you to all of our guests. Thank you to Brother Daniel. Thank you to Brother Raza. Um, and thank you to you for listening. Please forgive any shortcomings on our part. Until we meet again, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.